صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند باليستاين ريمبرد وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Thanks for joining us. This week, we'll bring you some audio from a webinar that I was a part of with Amnesty International and APAN, the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. Joining me were Rawat Araf, who's the Executive Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice, as well as Connie Lennerberg, who worked with Mohammed Al-Halabi for World Vision in Gaza. First off, here's Rawat Araf, Executive Director at the Australian Centre for international justice. Hi, everybody. I'd like to acknowledge the lands uh, that I speak to you from today, the lands of the Kamariago people of the Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders, past, present, and any First Nations people joining us today. This was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. And we have much work to do to acknowledge and atone for the wrongs of the past, the colonial crimes, which inflicted untold violence and pain that continues to condemn First Nations peoples on this continent to this day. Thank you to Amnesty International Australia and the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, APAN, for hosting this meeting today and asking me to speak. I'm truly honoured. For those that are new to the discussion on Palestine, firstly, welcome to this worthy and just cause. What do you know about Palestine? You might know about Israel's occupation, which enters its 55th year next week. Under international humanitarian law, occupations are supposed to be temporary. But Israel's occupation has endured since 1967, and Israel has shown every intention that this occupation is permanent, while it traffics in disingenuous talk of peace on the international stage. It's an occupation that is known for its widespread and systematic human rights violations that operate en masse on a daily basis to ensure Israel's militarized control over the Palestinian population in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. Perhaps you know what Palestinian lawyer and academic Noura Arakat, borrowing from Teju Kol, refers to as the hot violence, the intense air wars on the besieged Gaza Strip that are repeated with impunity on Palestinians in Gaza every few years. The airstrikes, the flattening of entire buildings, including civilian infrastructure, such as water and electricity plants, the artillery shelling, the sonic booms, the white phosphorus. There's the violence of the home demolitions and forced evictions in the West Bank. The shoot to kill policy of its trigger happy snipers or the deliberate kneecapping of Palestinian protesters in the great march of return in Gaza by those trained snipers. One of those trained snipers targeted the late Palestinian journalist Shirina Barkley in an exposed area on her face under her ear a few weeks ago. But it's the structural, slow, cold violence of Israel's apartheid that is often ignored. Sometimes it's not just ignored, but Palestinians are cruelly expected to endure it and give up on their fundamental right to be free from oppression and racial domination. 
It's the collective punishment, the land and property confiscations, the illegal colonial settlement expansion and enterprise, the economic exploitation of Palestinian labor and resources, the expansive military injustice system, the denial of freedom of movement, the severe restrictions on the movement of goods and trade. It's the blanket denial of the Palestinian refugees and their right to return and the racial exclusionary basis of Israel's constitution, which impacts detrimentally and severely on Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. Palestinian lawyer Hassan Jabirin has said Israel's apartheid legal order transcends the so-called borders of the Israeli state into a single legal order of Israeli racial domination of all of the Palestinian people, those inside the so-called Green Line, those in the occupied Gaza Strip, in occupied East Jerusalem, and those in the West Bank, and those in the diaspora, those inside the refugee camps and beyond. Noura Arakat and John Reynolds used this analysis, used the analysis of Palestinian academic in, uh, at UNSW, Lana Tatu, who defines all of these elements as pillars of the overarching settler colonial structure of Israel's apartheid. To give you a brief understanding of Israel's system of apartheid, I want to talk briefly about my own Palestinian background. Israel's settler colonial apartheid regime has a deliberate policy of fragmenting the Palestinian people as a whole. This deliberate policy of fragmentation is a distinct feature of apartheid and its system of control. It also plays strongly into Israel's violation of the fundamental human right of the Palestinian people, the right to self-determination. I am a Palestinian living in the diaspora. I have the privilege of Western citizenship, my roots, and all Palestinians will be able to tell you upon introduction which village, city, or region they are from, are from the West Bank. My father is from a village near the town of Selfit, and my mother from a village near the city of Tulkarim. My siblings and I, though born in Kuwait, are listed under my mother's West Bank ID. I'm married to a Palestinian who holds Israeli citizenship. He hails from a village in the northwestern Galilee. This segment of the Palestinian people is almost always forgotten. They are referred to by the apartheid regime of Israel and its supporters as Arab Israelis or Israeli Arabs in a deliberate attempt to deny them their Palestinian identity and nationality. Until recently, you would not have heard about them, but Israel's supporters have used this group as a propaganda tool in an attempt to show that Israel cannot be an apartheid regime because this Palestinian population has rights like other, um, just as other Israeli Jewish citizens do. Look, they say, there's an Arab judge on the Supreme Court. There are Arabs in Israel's parliament, all of which does nothing to deny the reality of over 65 laws and policies that are in place that distinguish on the basis of race, prohibitions that no Israeli Jewish citizens will ever face that Palestinian citizens must endure. Let me give you an example. Already my husband and I are facing questions about our future in our homeland, whether I can live with him or not. That is because Israel has enacted discriminatory laws and policies that disrupt family life in, for Palestinians. Since 2002 and recently becoming permanent, Israel adopted a policy of prohibiting Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza from gaining legal status in Israel or East Jerusalem through marriage, which prevents family unification. As Amnesty states, this policy has forced thousands of Palestinians to live apart from their loved ones. Others are forced to go abroad or live in constant fear of being arrested, expelled or deported. These measures explicitly target Palestinians and not Jewish Israelis. They are primarily guided 
by demographic considerations that aim to minimize Palestinian presence inside Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory, what we refer to as Palestine from the river to the sea. This demographic obsession has long been a feature of Zionism, the founding ideology of the Israeli state, and is manifested in every aspect of its system of racial domination and control. So how do Western, powerful Western allies shield Israel's apartheid and how are they complicit in it? Let's take a brief look at Australia. While it's welcome that we've voted out the most anti-Palestinian government in Australia's history, there's a lot of work to do to undo the damage they've caused and to challenge the ongoing policies, agreements and relationships with Israel. No sector is immune from the reach of these relationships, including the arms trade and the goods and services that flow between Israel and Australia. Indeed, even state governments are deeply complicit with Israel's crimes. The previous federal government initiated a process to consider entering into a free trade agreement with Israel. And it's likely that this new Australian government will continue that work. We have to be ready to oppose this agreement. So please have a look at the submissions to that process provided by organizations like mine, the ACIJ, APAN, and many others. And we'll continue to monitor the process and challenge it throughout. In 2004, the International Court of Justice condemned the apartheid or annexation wall built in the occupied West Bank as illegal. Customary rules of international law provide that states should not recognize nor render aid or assistance to this internationally wrongful act. Measures that were and are still available to states to put an end to the many wrongful acts perpetrated by Israel against the Palestinian people include sanctions. Australia, led by the then Foreign Affairs Minister Alexander Downer, opposed the court even exercising jurisdiction to provide that 2004 ruling. It made that known when it lodged its observations. And indeed, as an aside, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement came about in the immediate context of this decision and the lack of a response by the international community to actually enforce it. This pattern of Australia intervening to shield and encourage Israel's crimes was repeated in early 2020, when Australia was one of seven states parties to the International Criminal Court, intervened to try and prevent an investigation into international crimes in Palestine from being investigated by the ICC's Office of the Prosecutor. Australia acted on request from the Israeli government, and we know that from evidence seduced by DFAT officials at Senate estimates hearings. It was my organization that broke this news and we pushed for months before a mainstream news media outlet was willing to cover it and alert the Australian public about what was being done against international accountability in our name. And so we need to demand the Albanese government immediately reverse Australia's objection. One of the crimes that the ICCC could and must investigate is the crime against humanity of apartheid. And there's been a marked change in the last 12 months with you know, and the reason why we're sitting here discussing it today with international human rights organisations, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International making these findings, joining an array of Palestinians who have long described the reality they live in as a cruel and oppressive system of racial domination. Senator Penny Wong, as shadow foreign minister, in responding to these reports, said that we don't use the term apartheid because it's never been applied by, by an international court or tribunal. It's true that apartheid has been codified as a crime against humanity under international law and in domestic law, including Australia's own Commonwealth Criminal Code. But we don't need an international court to make that finding in order for us to recognise where it exists 
and work to dismantle it. Apartheid carries what we call in international law ergo omnes obligations, meaning we have a duty and in fact an obligation to humanity to end it where, exi where it exists. The Palestinian people have a right to be free from, from military occupation. Israeli settler colonialism and apartheid now, not if and when some peace agreement is reached. And we have seen how the international community, powerful Western states can mobilize in an instant to condemn aggression and grave violations of international law and human rights with respect to Ukraine. The imperative on Palestine must change. Palestinians are tired of hearing the numbing rhetoric of peaceful negotiations and two-state solution. These lines are used in robotic fashion to condemn Palestinians to permanent occupation and apartheid and absolve those who utter these lines from any legal obligation to act. And so a global, beautiful and inspiring anti-apartheid movement for Palestinian liberation is growing and everyone is welcome to join it. Thank you so much. That was Rowan Araf, Executive Director at the Australian Centre for International Justice. Fantastic Palestinian. We've had her as a guest before. We'll make sure that we invite her back before Christmas. Love to hear from her again. A plug for our Radiothon, Saturday 18 of June, 9.30. Rob and I will be live in the studio taking your calls. So get your credit card ready. Make sure you call in and say day to us and pledge some money to 3CR. In the meantime, go to www.3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donations are tax deductible. Be sure to note Palestine Remembered. Radiothon 2022, Saturday, June 18 at 9.30. Be sure to tune in and call in and speak to Rob and I. Next up, my contribution to Amnesty and APAN's webinar on apartheid. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you on the ancestral lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'd like to acknowledge my Indigenous brothers and sisters, their elders past, present and emerging as the traditional custodians of this land. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. First, if I could introduce APAN, the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network, to each of you and commend you to go to our website, apan.org.au. APAN is the peak representative body. It's a membership group of the Palestinian people and the struggle for justice for the Palestinians in Australia. So I feel so compelled. Please do join us in our struggle for justice. We've heard wonderfully from Rowan as to um, what apartheid is and from Nikita with respect to her report. But we know what apartheid is. We know what it is because we've seen the movies. Uh, we've seen the, the vision, be it black and white or stills, from, from Sharpville through to a Mel Gibson movie where the, Daniel Glover, the black actor, walks into the South African embassy and says, I want to go to South Africa. And the ambassador there or one of the delegates says, you can't go to South Africa, you're black. And that's the reality of apartheid in South Africa, but it's also the reality of apartheid in Palestine and Israel. And it's the, the reality, and this report so does so very well, is it includes all of the Palestinians, not just the Palestinians in the West Bank. And I know I've seen your question there, Andrew, with respect to your understanding of apartheid and whether or not it just exists in a South African sense in the West Bank. No, it doesn't. It exists in all of historic Palestine. It exists for Rwanda and I here in, in Australia. Every aspect of a Palestinian's life is controlled by two sets of laws. The law that's applied to a Palestinian and the law that's applied to a Jew. And by Palestinian, we're saying people who are not Jewish, they could be Muslims, Christians, agnostics, atheists, etc. But every aspect of his or her life, if they're born today, every aspect of their life is controlled by Israel. The birth registry and the death registry controlled by Israel. The borders, the tax, stamp, currency, all Israeli. 
where they can live, who they can marry. If they marry someone outside with a different ID, we just heard about Rowan not being able to settle in historic Palestine because her husband holds a Israeli ID, who they can marry, what road they can drive and how much water they get if they can access their farmlands. If they can leave to study abroad and once they've studied abroad, whether they can come back in historic Palestine, the Palestinians in the West Bank, the state that we were supposed to have, only just now have the Palestinians been able to get 4G. The Israeli settlers, the illegal settlers in the West Bank and within Israel proper, or Palestine 48, they've had 5G for as long as we have. And this apartheid extends, Andrew and others on this uh, call, beyond the West Bank, beyond Israel, beyond the refugees that surround what we call the collar countries, those Palestinians who were expelled in 1948, ethnically cleansed, like my father and Rawan's family, ethnically cleansed from their ancestral homes in the collar countries of Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, and extending through to the Gulf and Iraq, etc. This apartheid extends everywhere. This is the, the reality of the apartheid that is Palestine. In South Africa, the question is, are you white or are you coloured? In Palestine and Israel, the privileges are determined by your religion. I'm, I'm really honoured and excited to be presenting to each of you. I know there's a few hundred of you on here and you're all Amnesty members, etc. And it, it's so heartening for Palestinians to have a group like Amnesty, the world's most recognised human rights organisation, standing up for Palestinians. Now, the Palestinians have been saying it for years that it's apartheid. Recently, Israeli NGOs like uh, Yeshdin and Betzalem, you know, Israel's largest human rights organization, quoted by the White House when they released their reports. Betzalem said it's apartheid. Human Rights Watch and now Amnesty. And this report, and Nikita spoke to it before, it is meticulous. It's 280 pages. It is very filled with legalese and it is a tough read it's a tough read as a palestinian because it's so harrowing it's a tough read for a lay person because of the language and because as human beings we just can't believe another set of humans could do this to anybody else amnesty has a 90-minute course that i've done it's really quite interactive it's an opportunity for you to get a really fundamental understanding of just the laws that exist uh, around the discrimination for the palestinians so be sure to check out the report and do that course that you save you reading the whole report. Uh, although if you are up to it, I'd, I'd certainly commend it to you. One of the great things about this report as, uh, as a differentiator from some of the other ones is that this report and Amnesty sought to engage with Palestinians directly. And this is really crucial in a colonial context where um, uh, NGOs and human rights organisations actually speak to those with the lived experience. And as we say in our struggle, there should be nothing about us without us. Chillingly, disturbingly, upsettingly, our oppressors as Palestinians, the Israelis, the Zionists, their supporters, wherever they might be in, in the West, etc., those that benefit from the status quo have not engaged one iota with the report. And there's a reason they haven't. It's because what's in that report is irrefutable. It is meticulously documented. There's uh, references to everything. It's irrefutable. So rather than engage with the report with a view to a long-term solution and shared humanity for us all, those detractors, those that benefit from the status quo, our oppressors have sadly decided to smear amnesty and the authors and everyone associated with it as being anti-Semitic. It's terrible. It's a terrible slur because we know 
what anti-Semitism ultimately manifests itself in, and we should never forget. But it's unacceptable for uh, a report of this calibre to be smeared and dismissed purely as being uh, anti-Semitic without ever being engaged in. And so we're very, very grateful. So thank you very much to to those people within Amnesty and, and our people that are on the call today. The reason I'm here today is to make a make a call out, a challenge, a request, a plea to each of you. Whilst we are thanking Amnesty for the report, it's a report. I mean, there's been reports, you know, children in detention, Aaron, we've had that many Indigenous uh, in-depth uh, reports. Reports quickly get filed away and, and gather dust. And whilst there's a global focus on settlements as if this might fix the issue, This report delves into the true extent of the incredible oppression the Palestinians suffer. And we, the Palestinians, need you, Amnesty members and Amnesty International, to stand up for the Palestinians now and tomorrow until we see justice. We need you to be committed to stand with us for the long term. The struggle isn't just about producing a report and putting it out there in the ether. We need to struggle for justice and human rights for all irrespective of any of our religions. Sadly, the Palestinians are not voiceless. We're not voiceless, but the Palestinians have been marginalized and silenced. That's why we need your voice and your advocacy and your effort. And it's so important for you to speak to your friends, speak to your unions, speak to your work colleagues, engage your politicians. We've got a brand new government. You know, meet your local politicians, speak to them, ask them what they're going to do about the struggle for human rights in Palestine. Australia's got a long history of generally doing the right thing. We don't always do the right thing and often we're slow. But when it comes to Palestine, Australia's been terrible. Australia has a, uh, has really failed the Palestinians. And so we're calling upon you to reach out to your politicians and do so. Our last prime minister dismissed the report and said, no country is perfect. And uh, Nikita and the team, I mean, the, the the comms they put out was just fantastic. And I'll, I'll just read it. While the PM is right that no country is perfect, not all countries commit crimes against humanity. And when they do, Amnesty International believes that Australia has an obligation to condemn these crimes, but also an obligation to act. So a, one, a wonderful rebuttal to uh, that flippant comment from our former Prime Minister, Nikita and team. Um, As Rowan said, Penny's response was a little bit more nuanced and I believe left some space open for Labor to engage with the report. She said that Labor doesn't agree with the use of the term apartheid, but she did say that the report's findings were concerning and she expected the government to review it closely, assess the situation on the ground and make representation about Australia's view. So I do believe that's a significant opportunity for us to be engaging with her, with this new government and really calling on them uh, to make a difference. The reality is Australia is a middle power. We can make a, a, a difference by uh, holding Israel to account, by recognising the state of Palestine. We create space for countries like Canada and New Zealand and Western European countries to, to join that and increase the pressure on Israel to abide by uh, its international obligations as a, as a country. I'm just going to very quickly touch on uh, a case that's dear to Connie, who will be joining uh, after I, um, but also to me, the um, Olive Kids, and in, in Nikita's introduction, she spoke about Olive Kids, the Australian uh, Australian Foundation for Palestinian Children. It's an uh, orphan sponsorship program that we set up. And we set it up because World Vision could no longer send money to 
Palestine to Gaza because their manager there, Mohammed Al-Halabi, six years ago in a following a routine meeting in Jerusalem was detained by the Israelis. He was interrogated for 50 days without access to a lawyer, held without charge, held without uh, seeing a lawyer. He was beaten to the point where he lost hearing in one ear. The Israelis alleged that he stole $50 million and diverted it to Hamas, which is would be amazing because World Vision's entire budget was $22 million. I mean, a famous Palestinian once uh, turned water into wine and fed his followers with six loaves of bread. But how he turned $22 million into 50, I'll never know. The Australian government, independent investigations commissioned by World Vision, etc., found no evidence of any diversion. Yet six years later, he still sits in jail. Uh, he's had 160 uh, hearings. Connie will talk more about it, but we really need to uh, really need to be holding Israel to account. I'm going to finish uh, just with a very quick story about my father, and, and a personal story of how apartheid affects me and my family here in Australia. You know, a million miles from from Jerusalem, where my father was born. My father was given refuge in Australia in the 1950s as a stateless Palestinian. Our former treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, his mother, a Holocaust survivor, former uh, uh, citizen of Hungary, she was also a stateless person, and she was afforded refuge in Australia as well, both thrown from their homes, both at the other end of earth. Both Josh and I were born in Australia, both educated here, both married here, both raising our families and businesses, etc., and Josh becoming... Uh, the treasurer of Australia. Different between Josh and I, we're both Australians, Josh is Jewish. I was raised by a Muslim father and a Christian mother. But Josh is Jewish, and according to Israel's apartheid laws, he has a right to take up Israeli citizenship and all the benefits that affords him, cheap housing, uh, relocation money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My father was born in 1926 in Mandate, Palestine, in a vastly different Palestine to the Palestine Israel that exists today. And he used to tell us a story about what his life was like when it didn't matter what your religion was. And in the 20s and the 30s, the, you know, before the um, invention of the iPhone, the, the game that was played was marbles. And on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, he and his two mates, Abraham, Avraham, and Ibrahim, these are the three uh, names for the father of uh, these three great religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Abraham, Abraham, Avraham, and Ibrahim would play marbles together. And on Friday, Ibrahim would go to mosque. And on Saturday, Avraham would go to temple. And on Sunday, Abraham would go to church. And on Monday, they'd play marbles together. They didn't know or care who or when you celebrated their God, how you celebrated your God. They were only interested in winning marbles. My father's dying wish was to be buried alongside his mother and father in our village. Now, our village is inside Jerusalem's borders. It's uh, part of the West Bank, not part of what um, theoretically in a two-state solution would be Israel. So when he passed, we um, sought the advice of the Israeli embassy as to how we might repatriate his body and fulfill his dying wish. We were asked if we were Jewish, if my father was Jewish. And when we said no, we were told in no uncertain terms that this, that there would be no way that this could happen. I tried again a second time, had the same uh, result with the uh, 
the embassy here in Canberra. This is apartheid. Joshua's mum can actually be buried there. My father wasn't allowed to. This is apartheid. One law for my father and a different law for Joshua's. We're both Australian, but one privileged by the apartheid law because he's Jewish, and the other denied his dying wish because he wasn't. Sadly, my father had done the calculus uh, many years before he died, and he knew that the eventuality of him being able to get uh, taken home was going to be pretty slim. So he smuggled some soil with him out of Palestine, and uh, we were able to sprinkle some soil when we buried him. That's apartheid. It's not because we're black and they're white or we're white and they're black. Just because we celebrate God on a different day. It's, it was unacceptable in South Africa. It's unacceptable in Palestine. Thank you for everything uh, Amnesty's done. Thank you for being part of this presentation. And I'd commend you to please read the report, share it with your friends, talk about it. None of us is free until all of us is free. That was Rowan Araf and myself following APAN and Amnesty International's webinar on apartheid. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share the podcast. Tell your friends. Saturday, June 18 also. Make sure you put that in your diary. Saturday, June 18 at 9.30am, Rob and I will be live in studio doing talkback, taking your pledges. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. We need your support. Be sure to call in. We'd love to have a chat. In the meantime, remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.